Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the 4Jack Podcast. On today's show, we have a man who needs no introduction among the Western Canadian club professionals, former program coordinator for Grant McEwen's professional golf management course, Mr. Alan Riley. Alan has been a CPGA professional since 1983 with a stellar career that eventually led him to becoming one of 25 master professionals in the country. We discussed the dissolvement of the PGMT program and the impact that that has had on new club pros and why it was so instrumental to growth in the early years of the profession. Alan shares with us his introduction into the game and the fundamentals he implemented that helped him become a true professional and a successful teacher and what other young pros can do to follow in the, in the footsteps of their mentors. Unbelievable interview with a man that has had such a profound impact on the golf industry. So without further ado... Alan Riley. Welcome to the Four Jack Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Four Jack Podcast, brought to you by Jackson Labs. Speaking of the lab, we're back in it today. Huge guest today. Local legend of sorts, to be honest. Um, someone that, if anyone worked in the industry, you have a very good understanding of who this man is today. But before we get to our guests, let's just say hello to the boys. Let's go out east first. Tom, what's happening? Not too much, boys. I'm excited to see you guys. Nothing nothing is finer after 72 hours behind the laptop doing work all weekend to see my two best friends and make a new friend today. That is a local golf legend. Super excited to dive into his story. I've heard a lot about him, and it's nice to finally put a face to the name. Absolutely. Yeah, it should be a fun one for you, Tom. Uh, Parks, what's going on, my friend? How are we? Hey, I gotta say, it's it's like you're back in the lab, but this is your last night in the lab. So yeah, and I don't even it's... know where I'm sitting here. Like, I feel like I'm quite awkward. Like, I'm sitting on a pool table, and I, I are you really? I'm yeah. yeah, I'm seeing different things here. This is this is out of the norm, but doesn't matter where we are tonight. Everybody will be glued to this podcast. There's a lot of a lot of our listeners have been dying to get to know Alan Riley. We've talked about him. We've alluded to him. We've foreshadowed this. He's a man that's touched a lot of golf professionals' lives in the industry in Alberta and Canada. I mean, one of the first master professionals in Alberta and just an absolute legend in the game. So, uh, yeah, excited to have him on the show and excited to dive into it tonight. Definitely not not only just a master professional, former coordinator, program coordinator at McEwen, uh, the PGMT program that we all took. I mean, unfortunately, the new kids don't take it. And is a writer, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Alan Riley. How are you, sir? I'm great, guys. Thanks very much for having me on. This is uh, this is a real honor to be invited on the podcast. Oh, well, I mean, you can't have an Edmonton golf podcast without uh, having Mr. Riley on. I mean, you know, the guy that scalded us for playing ping pong for far too long and not paying attention <laughs> during class and uh, maybe a lot of other things as well, but uh, we can dive into that later. But Alan, how are you and how is life going? How is uh, life after GMAC going? Yeah, well, after 21 and a half years of uh, being an instructor slash assistant professor at McEwen, I packed it in December 31st last year, and now I'm doing my best to figure out how to do nothing all day and make it last the entire day. <laughs> that we all deal with, and you know what? Sometimes it's kind of nice, but uh, not in the COVID times, I can tell you that much, especially not in the winter. 
no, it, uh, I'm sure after all of this that's been going on for the last several months, there's a lot of people are feeling increasingly uh, shack wacky as the snow is on the ground now and we're even more sheltered in, but mm -hmm. anyway, it's all good. Exactly. And did you guys, did you guys get a new announcements in Alberta today? For restrictions, because we we got some out here, but I I haven't. We got ours deep last dove. week. You got last week. You didn't have anything updated today. Okay, I was just gonna no. say. I think we are gonna see some new restrictions, some tighter restrictions. So, as you alluded to, people are starting to get a little bit cabin fever. I can only imagine it's it's just about to get worse out here. So yeah. yeah. Well, let's not think about that. Let's think about some other things. Alan, you kept us in line for many years and uh, at Grant McEwen put the fear into Cody and I's heart uh, when we definitely did not do our homework and we were sitting there 20 minutes before class going, okay, so how do we figure this out? Or me and Mr. Philpot showing up 20 minutes late when we realized, do we want to drive through the snow today? No, but then realized that we need to because we haven't done anything in days. So uh, I, I, the one question I want to ask like that I find very interesting so obviously the PGMT program has now ceased to exist, which I think is a crying shame. Um, I spent some time working at the Northern Bear this summer and kind of worked among a few younger pros. And it, it was strange to hear some kids talk about working in the business and not going through the program. And it kind of made me sad. And I thought about the time spent at Grand McEwen with you and Jody. And I went, I don't think these these young kids will ever get the true experience of becoming a professional in Edmonton or Western Canada without that program. And I, uh, I'd like to hear your take on that. Well, you know, for me, it was, it was really a lot of fun. It was, a, it was, you know, I had a head professional job and I'd been there 11 years and things were going well. And, and uh, to take the leap of faith and move my family, um, quit that job, moved my family into Edmonton to take a job with a one-year contract. That's all it was. I had seven one-year contracts when I first started before I got a continuing position there. And, uh, but I thought it would be a lot of fun. It would be something different, get me out of my comfort zone. And the, uh, the other thing was I remembered how badly I wanted to get in the golf business. When I first got in the, started looking at getting in the business back in the early 1980s, man, I wanted it more than life itself. And I hadn't forgot that. I still haven't forgot it. So having an opportunity to um, help other young people who had that same keen desire to be uh, in the golf business uh, was really was really a fun and attractive thing for me. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, there's, there's hardly a golf course in certainly in Northern Alberta, maybe even central Alberta that doesn't have um, a graduate of our program. So the program ran for almost 20 years and we put through, you know, 40 new students a year. So that's a lot of people. And a lot of them are still in the business. Very successful in the business as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, the other thing is, I've sort of gone sideways on your question. Okay. I think one of the great things from the student's perspective was being able to meet other students. And you guys think about all the friendships you, you made uh, when you're going through a, a school as a cohort of students and you get to know everybody and you've all got the same, the same interests and desires. 
uh, as far as career is concerned. And then, you know, the fun you guys had in the summer playing golf together when you were went off to, to work at different golf courses, that is an experience that not a lot of people have. And certainly the students or, you know, the apprentices that are going through the program now are going to miss all of that. The other thing you're going to miss is, um, you know, even if you don't stay in the golf business, and a lot of students didn't, there was an opportunity to graduate with a business diploma, which you could take and shop that into a job or a career somewhere else. And then starting probably around when you guys were there, there was the opportunity to ladder after two years into the BCom program and mm -hmm. take two more years and come up with a, with a diploma and a, and a business degree. So I think it opened up a lot of doors. And um, being in the golf business was also a great opportunity for people to make contacts and meet people. You, I mean, think of the relationships that you've had in, in uh, the people that you've met when you were behind the counter mm -hmm. and the opportunities that people had guys would walk into the shop and go, you, I got an offer for you. If you want to get out of this business, come and work for me. <laughs> a lot of guys did that. That was the dream. <laughs> yeah. That was the fall time dream. How like, many oh, thousands of dollars will you pay me to get out of here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so yeah, it was good. It was really a lot of fun and, and getting to, to meet young people and, and, and watch people, you know, go from 18 year old greener than green, really didn't know very much about the golf business or life or the world and see him graduating three years later and then going on to having successful careers, whether it was in the golf business or not. Um, for me, that's for sure that one of the most satisfying things that I've had in my career, having, you know, in some small way, having been a bit of an influence on, on people and helping them carve out a career that they, that they wanted to have. I, I yeah. think you're selling yourself short, to be honest. I, I think you have more than a, a small influence on these people. Like, I, I know all three of us can attest to that, that like being our age now and seeing, you know, the Kevin Chows, the Dan Philpots, the Ver the Verifons, and seeing like all of these head professionals now. And you're like, oh, wow, like this is really good. Like you've carved out a great career out of this. Like you used to be the guy that I would get drunk with every single weekend. And now like <laughs> you're like really well established in the area. It's really cool to see. One thing that's interesting from my perspective too, even cause I didn't go through the program, but I've kind of been like an adopted brother to the golf community in yeah. Edmonton. And I know a lot of the guys and I've been around and it's been interesting to hear your name come up just over and over again of like, if someone's doing wrong, it's like, what do you think Alan Riley would have to say about that? Right. <laughs> so I guess it kind of evolves into a question of you built this program kind of with the idea in mind that you wish you had something when you were younger that kind of got you on the train tracks and guided you into the golf business. So I guess, yeah, what were some of the key pillars to like what you wanted to build into a program to teach kids that were coming up or like something that you thought you needed back then that you wish was more available to you? Well, I think, I think the biggest thing for me was um, in addition to the business side of things, which um, I didn't start teaching until later on, but the golf specific stuff for me, I think one of the, one of the, the biggest things that I tried to 
get students to understand was professionalism. And that even though you may only work 10 hours a day, seven days a week in the golf <laughs> business, uh, people are always watching you and you're, you're kind of, um, you're kind of on display all the time. And, and, you know, it really is a small world and, and you never know when, when you're going to run into somebody that, you know, I mean, I was standing in the lineup in Disneyland Paris and found a guy I knew I, just, you never know. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so the idea of, you know, what is a professional and what is it, what does it mean to be a professional and how do you define that? And, and how do you sort of, um, embrace that idea that it's it's not just during the eight hours that you're working in the in the pro shop but it becomes a part of you it's a part of the way you think about yourself and and i think that transfers you know not only into the golf business but into any other type of career a person wants yeah like just learning how to like it's there's no separation here it's like you're trying to fuse one entity into the same because being a professional in any aspect of life will pay benefits like in your personal relationships. If you just handle yourself as a professional would in a sense, like let's not get too emotional about certain things and like, okay, how would I want to address this if I were in that situation? And it just like, I think it's part of building, building a holistic human, I guess, out of the whole process. Right. Yeah. It's part of that. And and for sure. And you know, a lot of the times it's not something that somebody who is, 17 or 18 years old really thinks about. And, uh, you know, I was, I was lucky when I got in the business, I got hired by Ray Milne, who was the, the head professional at Highlands golf club. And, and, um, you know, he was the one that, that, uh, taught me what it was like, what it meant to be a professional. And, and, you know, at that time there was, uh, Bill Carrington and Bill Penny and Derek Gibson and Sandy Robertson over at Glendale. And, you know, all of those guys, when you're, when you're around them, um, whether it was at the buying show or at golf tournaments or later on when I, some of them served on the board of directors when I was on there as well, you, you kind of, you learn directly and indirectly what those people look like that were sort of the quote unquote professionals in the business. So, when I, when I started the program, I just tried to continue on with basically those same ideas. Mm-hmm. I've, and it's funny, like you say that, like with Ray Mill, I mean, Ray was like the pros pro. It was like your classic pro. Like I know working under Al Elgy was the same where, you know, he learned from Ray <clears throat> and he would tell me like, this is how you do it. If you don't do it, then you're not a professional. Like this is the way you need to follow. If you want to be really good at your job, follow these simple rules. And this is like your key to success. And I feel like you don't see that as much anymore. I mean, not that I don't like it the way it is now. Like I like the younger perspective on a lot of things, but at the same time, like I miss that like old school pros mentality. Like get your dress shoes nice and tight clean them up. I want to see everything tucked in. I don't want to see anything sloppy looking like even working in the shop this year, seeing guys in like runners. I'm like, what is this? And I mean, don't get me wrong. I definitely put them on after I saw everyone else wearing them, but (laughs) I was like, Whoa, like this would never in a million years happen for me. 
I was never allowed to touch that. Like, even if I showed up with a belt that didn't match my shoes, there was going to be a problem. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. It's just very different now without those old school pros. I'd love to get like a quick breakdown of like, yeah, what did that list of like, this is what a professional is. Like if we could break that down into something that's digestible for our listeners, I think that'd be good. I think part of it is what Chris was talking about was how you, um, how you look, whether we like it or not. Um, humans react to people's appearances. And uh, so if you, showed up in the pro shop looking like you'd slept in the back of your car with your clothes on. Everything's all wrinkled and <laughs> dirty. <laughs> and it's possibly could have happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rookie mistake, mm. you always got to have a clean set in the car. Anyway, uh, so part of it was appearance, uh, but mostly it was about, um, about how you conducted yourself. And the biggest I think the, the biggest thing and the first thing that Ray taught me was everybody gets treated the same. No favorites. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets treated exactly the same and they get treated well. And there's, um, if you want to get respect, you need to show respect, right? So showing respect to people. Um, and, you know, even if you're tired of listening to, the fifth guy came in the shop to tell you shot by shot how he shot his best or worst round of his life. Um, you indulge them and um, everybody gets the same kind of respect. Everybody gets treated with integrity. Um, when it came to selling equipment, you sold equipment that was best suited for the person not just because you happen to have that thing is when that dog's been on the rack for two years, go and dump it on somebody, right? That didn't happen. Uh, so you're always looking out for other people's best interests. And then uh, I guess part of that is, is the integrity factor where you're just honest with people. Yeah. I know like the big thing. And I mean, that's with every private club and especially any public club that has lots of members, but the big thing was like, know every single member's name, know something about them. If you can know their spouse, know their kids. It's like, if you can treat them all the same and you remember their name, it's going to go a long way, like so far. And it did. It, those were like small keys to success for sure for me. Yeah. yeah. It's about creating relationships. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's a common theme across, you know, 90% of the professionals we've had on the show and just, the level of stature they've established themselves at it's it's always just about paying attention and being a good listener and just yeah. you know actively listening to what they're saying probably something we would have learned in one of your classes but not being so quick to respond but you know digest the information and then think about what how your you know what your next move is or how you're going to execute and and a lot of these guys i got to say i went to school with a group of guys that there was a lot of ego in our class alan um, bravado. Yeah. I got to say, like, I mean, everybody was out to get everybody and everybody, even though we were all boys, everybody was trying to one up. And a lot of those guys aren't in the business, but those aren't the guys that were ever going to be something in the business. It seemed mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't come across a lot of professionals that 
have achieved anything in, in their careers that were really egotistical or really, you know, short or smart with people. It's, it's like you say, people that were just willing to treat people with respect and have integrity and, and not be about the sale, but pay attention and really, really listen. So, yeah, that's just my piece yeah, on that. That works in, in, like you said, that works in every type of career, every type of business you're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think one of the interesting things here is we had Derek Lane from Rolling Hills Country Club on the pod the other week, and the things that you're talking about, what makes a professional, were very evident in who he is as a person. And it's like, he didn't grow up in the Grant McEwen program. He lived in the States, but it's one of the cool things about golf is it kind of breeds that integrity component, learning to deal with people as like individuals, because you never know who's going to be the good golfer, right? Like it could be some old guy that comes out and he can whip your ass like al algae always would i hear the stories Stomp about him me. just coming down and like you could never beat him and it's like that ego that parks you talks about with the younger guys it's like it's interesting how it evolves into this person that is accountable is hasn't high levels of integrity and is is a real human which is kind of one of my favorite parts of golf and the relationship aspect i'm gonna add a piece to that Alan, my original comments, how were you nurturing those sort of seeds and how were you sort of approaching the, okay, I got this group of loudmouth kids. How am I going to engage with them so that there's a respect level, but also I'm going to try and create some education here and maybe mold these minds a little bit. What was that approach like for you? Well, if you remember the first semester, there was a, there was a course called golf as a profession mm-hmm. and I taught it for a while and I'm not sure who might've taught it when you guys were in there, but a lot of the ideas around uh, what's certainly, what's the business like, what are the expectations that uh, students would have? What expectations do employers and um, members and customers have? So that sort of set the groundwork. We laid a lot of that stuff out. Um, part of it for me too was just trying to be a role model and exhibiting those kinds of the correct kinds of behaviors. And all of the other golf specific courses that I taught, I, you know, I tried to layer on ideas around that that uh, professionalism note. And then the other thing I tried to do was was um, pick other people who were going to teach the golf specific courses who I thought would also model the level of professionalism that we were hoping for. A couple of times I were wrong. I was wrong and they didn't teach again, but for the most part, I think uh, we had a pretty good group of, of um, instructors as well. Oh, I always thought they were such a great group. I mean, for my, like I was in the operations side of things and, even having guy like uh, like Ralph from the Glenora, he was pros pro. The guy was phenomenal. And then you even a guy even having like Ruby, like get Kincaid in there. I mean, you know, like that is he was more relatable Ruse for was, us. Like, Ruse but he was the worst. No, but he was great <laughs> because like he was closer to our age, almost in a way. Like he's still quite a bit older, but like you're at the Edmonton country club and you're not that much older than us. You're like, wow, like this is incredible. Like you can do that. Like that's achievable. And he was like, he was a good pro and he's still a great pro. And like, that was really cool to watch and even having angles. 
Like I had Jared Angle as my associate pro at Belvedere. So did Tom. And I feared that guy with all my heart, but I didn't mind him as a, as a professor, like, or as an instructor, he was great, you know, because he knows how to be a pro. And he was a product of Al Elgy. He's like, do it this way or don't do it at all. Figure it out. Yeah. And as the program went on, I was able to start recruiting uh, people who had graduated from the program and had like Mr. Kincaid and had gone on to being a head professional mm-hmm. and then bringing them back in sort of completing the loop, so to speak, where, you know, they start, finish, get a good career and then come back and, and try to pass knowledge on to the, to the new students. Mm-hmm. Now you, you had quite an interesting path to kind of lead into that. Like you said, you started in the eighties and, the golf industry starting under Ray and then moving out to Edson, but you, you really had this affinity with the golf swing and becoming a more than just a professional leading into that master professional title. And I know like when we kind of learned in school a more about the golf swing from you, it was like, Oh wow. Like this is a lot more than I thought. Like talk to us about like your dev- own development with the golf swing and then even leading into becoming a master professional. You could even start with like what got you into golf, even. Yeah, like, let's take it that? all yeah, the sure. way back here. Yeah, take it right okay. back to the introduction to the game of golf. Yeah, like what where that you was like the... and how old you were and all that stuff. Okay, so uh, I grew up in small town in southern Alberta, and when I finished high school and was working in the oil patch, there wasn't much to do. <laughs> so I thought. Summertime, I need something to do. I'm, I'm working shift work, and I got days off during the week. And well, maybe let's try this golf thing. So, and this is a true story. I opened up the Sears catalog, and I ordered a seven-piece set of golf clubs from the Sears catalog. And <laughs> it came with these plastic heads, nice <laughs> woods, vinyl bag, rickety little dinky little aluminum pull cart and off Alan went to the golf course and I used that for a couple of years and then I figured I was in the really going to move up into the big league so I went to a a department store in Lethbridge and bought a northwestern set of 11 piece clubs and I can still remember the guy the salesman because I knew nothing right knew nothing and the salesman was telling me that you could tell these were really good golf clubs because they had a lot of step downs in the shafts. <laughs> I think this is influential. There's, there's a techni- technological sales pitch for you. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, step downs. Yeah, that's what I need. I played for for quite a few years and I was just awful. Like you know, I couldn't break a hundred. Um, but uh, um, kind of fell in love with the game and where I lived, you could drive 30 miles and go to Waterton Lakes golf course, which is a Stanley Thompson design. It was never busy. And at that time, the national park service ran it. It was immaculately maintained and you could pay five bucks and play all day. So guys that I worked with, we would go down every day off and be there for nine o'clock, give the guy cost me 10 bucks a day. I'd get, I'd pay my $5 greens fee and I'd get three Spalding green dot golf balls just in case I might lose one. And off we would go and we just loop that place. We'd play at least 27. Most of the time it was 36 holes and just did that every day. So that's where I got started. 
Um, and I was, I don't know, I'd finished university, so I was probably 25, maybe. Yeah, 25 or maybe just turning 26 and thought, you know, this might be a lot more fun to do for a living than working in the gas plant. And uh, so I went to see the fellow who was the head professional at Henderson Lake Golf Course in Lethbridge because he was the only golf professional in that whole, I think, from Medicine Hat south of Calgary to the to the BC border. There was one golf professional. Jeez. And uh, um, I like that you went and found that? him. I like that you went and like you seeked him out. You're like, I gotta. That's like Warren Buffetty almost of you because when he was getting into the investing game and he wanted to put money on Geico. He's like, I got to go talk to the guy, right? Like I like that. You're like, let's go find this golf professional. Let's see what this is all about. That's super cool. Yeah. So he, he was very generous with his time and he, he, uh, he told me what the deal was, what the business was like and what you had to do. And we went out and played a, played a little bit of golf and, and I knew I was no good. I mean, I knew I, I had lots of improving to do. And uh, he said, well, if, if, you can, if you can learn to break 80 over this summer, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be needing an assistant next year and I'll hire you. So, you know, when you've got a goal. Challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. So you're going to try <laughs> to figure out how to make that goal happen. Unfortunately. He gave me, well, I didn't know it at the time, but he gave me the wrong goal. The goal shouldn't have been about score. It should have been about process. So I played every round of golf that summer as if my life depended on it. It was like I played a summer's worth of playing ability tests to try to figure out a way to get my score under 80 so I could get my dream job. And so I learned how to steer it straight because heaven forbid you don't want to ever you know mm -hmm. miss hit a shot and lose a golf ball or something because that's not good for your score so i learned to steer it straight and i learned to chip and putt and by the end of the summer i went from shooting in the mid 90s to the high 70s i think what scares me is the fact that you're using steering in this uh description of your game i think we were told never to really steer the ball right well that's the problem you see but <laughs> i didn't know any different and i would never ever tell anybody that now if i was if i was uh and i do uh, it would be rear back and smash it right <laughs> forget your score just go and bash that thing swing as fast as you can hammer that golf ball find it again and hammer it again and by following that kind of a process and learn to chip and putt, yeah. but by following that process, you learn to have a better golf swing. You learn to be a better player in the long run. And it's way more fun. And you're not focusing on the outcome. You're focusing on the process. So that's, that messed me up for, let's see, when did I play my last round this year? It messed me up for my <laughs> entire career. <laughs> because it was the wrong thought process. So, um, but anyway, I did manage to learn. He ended up hiring a couple of guys out of Ontario, so he didn't need anybody. And that's when I started sending out letters to every golf course in Alberta, seeing if I could 
letters and resumes, seeing if I could get into the business. And uh, the next summer, um, I got one reply back. And I did it again the next summer or the next spring. And that's when Ray Mill phoned me up and, and uh, said that uh, he wanted to have a discussion with me about me and the business. And uh, sounds familiar. He had the he had the courage to hire somebody that knew four fifths of five eighths of f all about being a golf professional. Like I was greener than green is green, but he saw something in me, and I am forever grateful for him taking a chance on me. Quite the step to step into Highlands as well, like such a old school track, and at that time, very probably a really older membership that is specific with what they would like to see. Oh, early on, you know, you have these gaps when you're trying to figure things out (laughs) and early, and you're right. Older membership set in their ways, guys, all these groups that all played together. And with all due respect, some of them were a little bit curmudgeonly. No. And (laughs) I know it's a (laughs) job. So one of the first, one of my first gaffes is a guy phones up and he says, I need a time for three. And of course, he's been phoning Ray and, and Stan and Stopchuck was there at the time too. They've been there for years. They knew these guys, who they were, right? I'm, oh, time for three. Okay, so I write down his name, three, because I'm thinking it's three in the group. They show up with three groups. <laughs> he's looking for a, a time for three groups, not three players. And the T-sheet's full. Start of time, start of time. <laughs> so yeah, squeeze time. <laughs> I have to apologize to this guy, and he's coming in because we're announcing it, right? And we announce one group, and then the rest of his group doesn't get. He comes in like a steam engine with the smoke coming out of his ears, and he's stomping in. He's going to give it to me. Where's you know? Where's the mix-up? Anyway, I ironed it out. It was all good. I got him out, apologized, and. But uh, there's yeah, no, there's nothing worse too about working at the private clubs and not knowing who guys are playing with, like the regular yeah. group. When you're like, oh man, I didn't know you and Steve and Sid played together. Geez, like I just booked Sid with this guy, and you're like, oh, that's gonna go poorly when this guy finds out that he's not playing with his group of the last 27 years. Yeah. yeah. Alan, I'm gonna jump forward a little bit here into your grandma Q and days again. I don't know what it was like for you, Pays, or, or anybody else, but trying to get established to be recognized, to be included in the program was quite a process when I went into school. And I know that that sort of changed as the years went on and you didn't have to have a playing resume. You didn't have to have a handicap to get into school. You didn't have to have letters to get into school. So talk us through a little bit of that process and how that sort of changed over the years. Yeah, there was two factors in that. One of them was um, we were endorsed by the PGA of Canada. And in order for them to endorse us, and and this happened before I started, um, the, let me just backtrack, the belief was that if if we want to bring in students, we need to be affiliated with the PGA and we need to have the PGA sending students to us through this endorsement program saying that, you know, we recognize their program and, and we recognize their education. 
So the PGA had some restrictions on who we could bring in. They didn't want, uh, they were still kind of tightly controlling things. So they said, you can't admit anybody that has a handicap over 10. Hmm. Most of our class wouldn't have been in there. I think, yeah, I think it was five when I got in. I, I remember it was quite a quite a big process, and it was like, wow, okay, is this really something I want to do? And then the other side of it was, initially, we had about 130 or 40 applicants for 40 spots. So we had to have some sort of a filter. And the PGA was kind of thinking that we were a bit of a filter for them. Okay. And we also had to figure out, um, who had the academic ability, who had some golf experience, who had some playing experience. And at that point in time, you probably went through, uh, you and I probably had an interview. Yeah. Right. For sure. And I think, Maybe. I think when I went in, Kevin Hogan had to sponsor me or something for this or had to write a letter on my behalf. Yeah, there was, yeah, there was a couple of letters of reference. Yeah. The resume and the playing experience, tournament experience and all yeah. that. And I had to, I think I had to be working at a golf course or hired to work at a golf course, something like that as well. Because I remember I was in Calgary and I was trying to go through the motions because I figured that was my career path to playing as a professional, not being a golf professional, but being a professional golfer, a little bit of a, lost in translation for me there but yeah it was it was quite a it was quite a thing and i remember i had reached out when i was in calgary and it was like no this isn't that's not how we do things and you need to be affiliated with a club or you have to have a head professional sponsor you or write a letter on your behalf so yeah it was it was a pretty pretty stringent process and i i remember later on hearing that the program was sort of suffering they weren't getting the intake that they were expecting and that they, they had to sort of lighten the restrictions, so to speak, to, to hopefully golf was growing and they needed more professionals to fill those spaces. So it was, it was a catch 22, right? You kind of had to let more people in the door to, to fill those seats. Well, one of the things that happened was the PJ was starting to move away from PGM programs and they stopped, <coughs> oh, excuse me. They stopped endorsing programs. Ah, uh. And when that happened, it meant that we no longer had to worry about pleasing the PGA, pleasing the PGA, and meeting their requirements. Hmm. And uh, so that's when uh, I, I don't know if your listeners are going to be too interested in all the nuts and bolts of all oh, of this no, stuff. But I think there will be many that are interested. In <laughs> Everybody in wants to know. I'm even interested, and I didn't go through it. I, I am too. Yeah, because your your situation is totally different than what mine was, Parks. Completely yeah. different. Yeah. One thing, so the only reason I ask this and I bring it up, because Robert Radcliffe, I, I'm sure you know of him, Yep. Uh, Alan, like part of the Golf Canada team, coaching team, and came over from the UK. And one thing that really sort of upset me was at whatever capacity in the UK, becoming a professional mean or meant that you had to maintain this playing handicap. Otherwise you got your status revoked. So you had to play X amount of tournaments a year and you had to maintain whatever your scoring average was to maintain your playing handicap. But seemed to seem to be in Canada. There's a lot of professionals in the industry that, you know, would show up to an event and couldn't break 85, couldn't break through a wet paper bag. Never mind. Me. So what's that? Me. 
Like wow. I, 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 you, you know what my scoring record I was? The day to single you out. Oh, I'll, I'll single myself out. Do you know what my <laughs> scoring record was? Like, bef- the on the practice rounds of playing ability tests, probably even par or better. Playing ability test yeah. day, eighty five <laughs> yeah. or higher, for sure in every single round. Like, there's so many guys like me out there, and there's <sighs> but there's great pros out of them. That was your kryptonite, hey? He did rifle off the most incredible 80 ever in like the <laughs> wildest weather I've ever experienced in golf. And that was that was enough. I was like, C Pays, you're the man. But you gotta experience Q school, man. PAT well, is nothing. You gotta go to Q school and, and no. go through that grind. Probably not. Probably just keep podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, what was your what was your professional playing career like? Did you ever ever have aspirations of trying to get to the next level or or chasing down any sort of tournaments or, or anything that was really close to home for you? Um, I think like most guys, I, I wanted to play well and I wanted to play competitively. Um, but I was never, I was never that good. You know I mean? You, uh, and I quickly realized that shooting 75 wasn't going to cash a check. Right? It's a respectable score. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a good score. Um, but when the other guys are shooting 60-something and you're shooting 73 or 75 or on a bad day, 78, <coughs> all I'm doing is, to oh, be yeah. honest. Paying for them I'm to just, win. I'm just paying for those guys to have a nice winter holiday. So, And the other side of the things, too, is the – the assistant series were not run out of the zone office back in those days. It was a loosely organized event to say the least. And some of the assistants were running it and not running them very well. Like they would cancel an event and not tell anybody. So 20 of us would show up and, Oh yeah, no, they canceled it. Oh, thanks. Took the morning off to come and play in this new event. Um, Anyway, I quickly learned that uh, I could, instead of taking the day off to go play in a tournament where I would donate money to the winner, I could stay home, teach lessons, and donate money to my wallet. Plus, I could help some other people get better at golf and have more fun at it, which was way more rewarding for me than playing in a tournament. So, um, I like that. One thing I noticed, too, is it was when Parksy asked – did you have your eyes set on any tournaments and things? You can tell that your mind is shifted towards that process thinking where it was like, I wanted to play well. It's not, yeah, I wanted to win this. It was just, yeah, I want to, I want to do what I'm supposed to do with the golf club. Well, right. Like that's continent. Everything process. takes care of itself. After yeah. That. Process versus outcome. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Which obviously segues into your drive to learn more about the golf swing and becoming an at-mass professional and in turn writing a book on it, but let's go more into, you know, your affinity with the golf swing. Well, <coughs> excuse me. The, the aha moment for me, um, without going into how this whole thing happened, uh, the aha moment for me was, in 1995, I want to say, um, I went down to Austin, Texas for two weeks uh, to see Chuck Cook. And if you know anything about golf instruction, he is 
a legend, one of the very best ever. And he was really, really gracious with, with me. He gave me lessons, let me hang out at the range and watch him teach. We played lots of golf. We played golf almost every day. He'd work in the morning and then we'd go tee it up in the afternoon. And, and uh, um, the first lesson I had with him, <clears throat> he watched me hit a few balls. And he said, okay, here's the deal. He gave me a five iron. He put the tee in the ground just so the ball was just barely above the ground. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he turned my hands way to the right. So it was just this ridiculously strong grip. The palm of my right hand was pointing up at the sky and the back of my left hand was pointing up at the sky. I mean, this, this was just ridiculous. Going left. <laughs> and, and his, the only thing he told me, he said, Alan, don't let it hook. And then he just turned me loose. Hmm. And I'm telling you, I, I hit some of the wildest. I mean, it feels so weird. I hit behind the ball. I hit the top of the ball. I hit it off the heel. I hit it off the toe. I fatted it. I topped it. I did everything for about half an hour. And he just laughed. He put another ball down and he'd say, Alan, don't let it hook. And what he was trying to do was get me to lag the club and swing at it from the inside and do it intuitively without thinking about it. Cause I was at a weak grip and I was coming a little over the top and tossing it. And then finally I make connection with this thing and I just hit this rocket. It just jumps off the club face, goes out about eye high, a hundred yards, takes a left-hand turn over the fence, right? Cause this thing has got enough spin on it to bore a hole through concrete, but I made contact. And then I hit another one and gradually I figured out how to keep my hands way ahead so I wouldn't shut the club face and I could lag the club. And by the end of the lesson, there was a, a practice green on the range that was at 200 yards. And when we were warming up, I was hitting my, well, this is back in the days of the wooden headed three woods. I was hitting my wooden headed ping three wood and flying it just to the front of this green. Well, by the end of the lesson, I was attacking the ball from the inside and holding onto the lag for long enough that these balls were going out with my five iron, eye high, and we're hitting the front of that green. I'd never hit a five iron that far in my life. Hmm. And that was the Sold. lesson. Sold. Sold. And, yeah. and then I went back year after year after year for about seven years, and we just kept refining that same, that same kind of motion. And then the other thing you did later that week, <clears throat> a storm ran through and it was kind of rainy and sleety and miserable. So we, he canceled his lessons for the day and he took me back to his house and he had in his office, he had set up a, a telestrator, which, you know, in the 1990s, the only time you saw those was on TV. And he had all these swings that he'd taken of tour players. And we sat there for gosh, a couple of hours. And he might say, okay, here's Ian Woosnam's swing. This is what he does. This is what his compensations are. This is how he makes it work. Uh, here's Lee Trevino. This is what he does. And we just rolled through swing after swing after swing. And my eyes were like, wow, I can't believe this. Mm. So that's, that's when it really, the, the, the bells really went off for me that it's not about you have to understand what you're doing, but you have to feel it. So in that first lesson, Chuck could have told me, 
you know, swing inside or, you know, I'll do whatever he wanted me to do. But he forced me to feel it. And he probably figured I was a good enough athlete and had enough experience in golf that I could figure out how to make it work. And he just laughed and watched me hack and thrash and away we go. I think uh, that's the, aha, I mean. uh, the aha moment was the, uh, the saving grace for you. And maybe that's what uh, is lost in translation. A lot of times when people are teaching, it's more of they're trying to instill something rather than have you find it for yourself. Well, that's the thing. It really is. People forget that the learning golf is really a voyage of self-discovery. You know, the instructor is there to help you keep you on the road. Uh, you know, if you happen to get in the ditch, put you back on the road again, but I can't, I can't teach it to somebody. I can help them learn it. And a cue that makes sense to me might not make any sense to you. Right. So you have to be, you have to have a big tool chest full of ideas about how to get your point across. But even more importantly, you have to know what point you're trying to get across. That's the critical thing. And what people forget a lot of the time is, Everything we do in golf is about impact. And anytime you are making an adjustment to your technique, the thought always has to be is what influence is this going to have on impact? What is, what is going to change at impact? And if a student um, is trying to fix some kind of a problem, um, if you're just sort of picking out something that looks out of sorts in their golf swing, which is really easy to do. And it's certainly what I did when I first started teaching, because I didn't know any different. Uh, oh, that looks odd. Let's fix that. But really it's about what's happening at impact. You think about guys like Matthew Wolf now, right? And he's yeah. got that swing where it's up and around and down mm -hmm. and in. Um, but impact is golden. And I'm really glad that George Gankus was smart enough not to mess with it because it doesn't matter how you get to impact as long as you get to the right kind of impact and you do it every time. Um, and it creates a ball flight that hits the ball far enough and works it towards the target. There's lots of ways to play golf. Right? Yeah, it's in lots of ways to play. It doesn't have to be straight. It's interesting you say that. I, I spent a little bit of time in Alaska and it was like, yeah, we always talked about yeah, people get caught up on like where what's the position but it's like in the end you're you're making a movement right and it's like you, again when you get to impact is where it is important but like along that movement from address up to the top of your backswing and then back down like there's a range of possibilities that could happen to get you in the right position at impact which is like cue matthew wolf right like craziest takeaway that if you took a, a freeze frame of him when he's three quarters up or halfway through his backswing and it's easy to say hey dude you're way outside here but it's like no you're you're orchestrating this little ballet to the point where you're in the right place at impact generating maximum club head speed club head is in the exact spot it should be and then it's delivering the result that you want well that's a prime example as well like of knowing your body because like i heard david mcclay talk about this recently about playing links golf and hitting low shots like low little chippy shots and it's like, without even the instruction, i.e. Matthew Wolf, if you just tell someone, hey, hit that ball low, without even knowing how to do it, your body's 
probably going to have a good idea of what it needs to do to do that. It's just actually doing that. Like saying, don't do what I've been taught. Just hit it the way that feels good in order to achieve that. Like get it the way you want to hit it at impact and make that shot. Easier said than done. But a lot of people like, and I'm going to touch on something here with you, Alan, but a lot of people are overtaught. And YouTube is not great for that either because now people are watching things that don't even refer or like have any reference to their body. Like that's not out of context. Yeah, it's totally out of context. Now, Alan, you said something earlier that I was going to mention it earlier, but I was like, oh, maybe we'll go a little bit farther until we touch this. But I couldn't believe the fact that you just said earlier, go out there and swing as hard as you can and go find it and hit it again like that. I like I Bone said that recently in the US Open. To, but any kid that you have, just tell him to swing as hard as you can and go find and do it again. That was I mean, that's a, a simple approach at golf, I guess, but that was never what I was taught, or I'm sure a lot of us were taught. It was like learn your fundamentals, figure out your plane, chip and putt. I mean, Alan, you were I was with you the first time I ever saw my swing on video. Like, you did everybody. And I was like, oh, wow. I was like, that's what I look like. And you're like, yeah, you just need to change this plane here, and that's it. It was never swing harder. I swung plenty hard. But it was, let's get our fundamentals right, and let's work from there. And now it's like, hey, just free flow it. Swing hard. Go do it again. Well, certainly if I was if I was working working with a beginner, especially if it was a a junior beginner, you need the fundamentals. You need grip, stance, posture, ball position, aim alignment, that stuff. And unfortunately, so many people don't pay attention to that. It's not the sexy part of golf. It's the boring part of golf. And yet you go to the range and you see people with weird grips, weird setups, weird alignments. and, And I think, man, you know, I could help you in 20 minutes make golf better and more fun for you just by fixing your setup. Um, But after that, golf is a distance game. So you need to learn to swing the club fast. So you use the word hard, swing hard. I would prefer to use the word fast, swing the club fast, because that conjures up hard tends for some people tends to conjure up images of tension. Yes. Like hard, like that. I got to pick up the back end of my car, uh, you know, weightlifting kind of thing. We're as fast as speed. Um, you, I can teach straight. Like if somebody learns how to swing the club fast and is spraying it, you can fix that. That's easy to fix. Mm-hmm. It's club face, maybe a little bit of swing direction. But if you get somebody who's <clears throat> sort of developed this, slow steady kind of swing you know or they're you know they're just trying to (coughs) excuse me steer this thing straight down the fairway um it's hard to rev them up so i'd rather and i do this with with beginners all the time when i'm teaching them is i tell them i don't care where this thing goes far is what you're looking for just don't be afraid to freewheel a golf club and swing as fast as you can while still maintaining your balance, right? I don't want you falling over and hurting yourself or any of that kind of stuff. You got to be able to stick your finish, but as fast as, <coughs> excuse me, as fast as you can swing the club, 
and stick your finish, get after it. I don't care where it goes. Success is far. Mm-hmm. And then once a person learns how to swing and has the confidence to freewheel the club and swing it fast, then it's easy to straighten that out. You just fix a club face angle generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny that you say the slow and everything. I mean, I Tom can attest to this. I got inspired Zulu, by Sunday. No, I got inspired by Sunday. And I just, I love the slow takeaway. And I find that I'm swinging it harder than I ever, faster than I ever have, or for at least for a while. But it's balance. I mean, I'm, I'm not a small kid. Like, I definitely have the ability to create speed. But, you know, for a kid, for juniors and stuff, like you're saying, go out and swing hard. My nephew's kind of going through the same thing where it's like he swing, swings super hard, but he's 120 pounds soaking wet. And yeah. it's tough to create that speed. But it is funny that you say just go out there, swing really hard. But he also doesn't chip a putt. So, I mean, he needs to figure that out too. But. I think the takeaway I have here is we all got a little more in the tank, Always. right? Find your swing and don't be a dick. Yeah. Basically well. is the philosophy of life, right? <laughs> swing, swing fast, trust the process. You can fix little things, but if you can't generate speed and you're doing all sorts of weird things to get around out there, that's going to be a tougher fix than just learning the process of like, yeah, like let's build that whip in here because club head, face maybe some adjustment to the swing a bit you're hitting the ball straight but if you're spending a lifetime building bad habits you're kind of hooped right and then be kind well, of your golf pros. you know the other and part of it too is uh, especially when a person starts to maybe uh, play in competitions we all know that the please go straight swing seldom goes straight right so you have to have you have to in my opinion you have to build in that fearless, I'm going to swing this club, let it free wheel through the ball. I'm, I'm not going to try to guide it or steer or control it. I'm going to trust this thing to go, and then I'm going to go find it. What is that? I got to wait. I got to stop you. What did you used to say? I'm trying to think of the verbiage right now. An aggressive swing with a... Oh, it's Bob Rotella, conservative strategy, aggressive swing. There you go. Mm. But you used to you used to, verbatim. You used to say that a lot in school. So anyway, good. Thanks for bailing me out of that. Yeah, that's okay. But it's true. Like you, you, that's why even tour players have different swings, right? They've got the range swing. They've got the Thursday swing. They got the Friday afternoon trying to make the cut swing. They got the Sunday afternoon swing where they're trying to win the tournament. Like things change subtly as uh, we place more and more importance on the result and learning to be able to get out of your own way and trust your golf swing free, let it free wheel. Um, and not, um, get tight about it and like block yourself. Yeah. Sounds well, like, that, like, that sounds like a life thing more than even just way beyond golf. Right. Like there's so much just deeper meaning to this than just, the golf aspect yeah emotionally disassociate yourself with the end result right be conservative but swing hard give it your all trust the process but like don't you set yourself up for failure to begin with maybe yeah i think one of the worst things we can do and that and and again i'm acutely aware of this because it was the 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 biggest mistake i made was getting too attached to the results and you watch guys 
Um, well, Dustin Johnson would be a good example of that. Um, you know, they just swing away, freewheel it. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, the results are really good if you just trust it. And the more you try to over-control it or steer or guide it, <coughs> excuse me, the more difficult it is to get that club face squared up. And, uh, and you see this all the time where guys will do one of two things. They'll either get too tight and they'll leave the face open. I'm thinking about coming down the stretch on Sunday and they'll fan it out to the right or they'll stall out their body because they're trying to guide it and they'll flip the wrists because if, if the body's not turning it, something has to move the club. So the wrist flip, and now we've got the closed club face. So now the ball's going left and, um, and there's nothing wrong with a person's technique. They don't suddenly forget how to swing a golf club. There's the importance of the situation and the importance they give on the result is starting to mentally interfere with the brain's ability to send that signal of muscle movement up to the body. Well, I guess this is a great segue then. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your book, uh, Playing Better Golf Without Practicing? I mean, we're really targeting on the mind when it comes to that. Hmm. Well, that guy is, believe it or not, that is ancient history. I, I wrote that in 2003. And uh, I'm actually working on the edition number two which is going to be an expanded version of that book. I'm hoping to have it ready for next spring, but it's, it's going to be called the intelligent golfer. Beautiful. And um, it's about um, a lot of it is going to be psychology strategy is some of the stuff that that first book was, was about, but also I'm going to have more of a focus on how to play the game. A lot of people uh, just um, don't make good decisions on the golf course don't pick good targets, <clears throat> don't make good club selections, and they just end up um, inflating their scores way more than they need to. Uh, we really, uh, Jody and I really saw that a lot with the uh, with the players on our golf teams over the years, where the guys could just absolutely clobber the golf ball and not have a clue how to work their way around the golf course strategically, right? It's like all the discipline in golf happens outside of the golf swing, right? Like once you get set up your line, like having the discipline to work on making sure your alignment's right, your grip's right, your posture. And then it's like, once you're there, just get primal with it for a split second. Right. It's cool to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Just trust your swing. I mean, most of us, most of us have trust issues when it comes to our golf swings. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> most things in life. Well, I mean, you were probably you and the course that we did take in school. First time I really ever heard of like golf psychology, sports psychology. And not that I hadn't, you know, obviously witnessed tour players kind of going through the process, but it's like, well, what are they doing? You know, I, I never knew. And it's like, even just put yourself in that think box and go, okay, I'm going to do this. And okay, yeah, this is it. Okay, let's just do that. And building that routine and building the habits. And it's, that changes everything. As soon as you develop that, like, I mean, I play with some guys and they're like, yeah, I don't even have a routine. Like it changes all the time. I'm like, how do you not have a routine? Like I've had the same one since I was 15. Like, I'm still trying to find my routine. I'm, I'm guilty party here that like <laughs> yeah. it will change depending on the situation for sure. 
Let's switch gears here, boys and girls. Let's let's talk about Alan's routine. We're gonna put him in the hot seat for a little rapid fire ten before we wrap the podcast. Alan, you ready? You ready for ten quick questions? All right. All right. What you got? Settle in here, boys and girls. Question number one: What is in the bag currently? Mine. Yes. Uh, well, you had Sharpie on the uh, your yep. podcast here a little while ago, and Sharpie hooked me up with uh, some Mizuno tools. Nice. Go. Good well, weapons. Years ago, so I got irons and hybrids and wedges and uh, Callaway driver, um, tailor-made fairway wood and a ping putter. Can I ask you I one know. quick question on that? Do you still carry two drivers? No. No, oh, I don't. Damn. I, used to, I thought that was the greatest play ever instead of a three-wood. Just like a fifteen degree or thirteen degree driver, I love Big that. Job, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it worked good for a while. I I, uh, I still have it. Sick, I love that. Uh, How old's the putter? Is this a way back or is this like trusty? Oh, yeah, no, I this putter is golden. Uh, Karsten Solheim handed it down to you. Karsten Solheim personally forged this. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, honestly, ding, it goes back ding. to about 1907 or something. On the anvil, out back of the farm. In Sedona, too. There you go. I love it. Uh, what kind of ball are we playing these days? Um, playing a Srixon. Oh. White or Z-star? yellow? Z-Star? Why? No, no. He's asking you white or yellow. I'm asking you what which ball, the Z-Star? Uh, Q-Star Tour. Okay. And yellow for my fading eyesight and my like advancement. You, you and Codes would struggle out there. Be fighting yeah. on whose ball is who. I think he plays the Strix on yellow now, too. It, he had to because he always started hitting other people's balls out there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Riles, are you a visor, a hat, a chapeau, or an urban sombrero kind of guy? Um. Hat to uh, sombrero, depending on the uh, sun hat or not. That's, yeah, exactly. That's, That's what I was going for. Cautionary tale, folks. Uh, when you're spending as much time as we do in the sun, and I did in my youth, I've had to have my face burnt off twice to get all of the, well, let's call it abnormal um, skin developments off my face. So Uh-oh. Um, you don't want to be, you don't want to be doing that. No signs of the C word, though, right? Uh, no. Okay, that's Mild good. stuff. Let's not keep so it that way. Let's not even go there. Are you a superstitious kind of guy when it comes to marking your golf ball? Um, I always mark it the same way. Okay, give us a little insight. And uh, when you look at the logo, to the right at the top of the logo, three dots. That's it. Simple. No line. No smiley face. No line, no if found, please call. I can't see straight anyway. So, <laughs> are you a superstitious range warm-up kind of guy? Do you, are you pretty methodical? Do you grab a beer and a, a driver and three balls and straight to the tee, or do you work your way through the wedges? What's your range warm-up like? Well, one of the things that happens when you get to be as old as me is your body starts to decide it doesn't want to work very well. And I now have the flexibility of a hockey puck. So I need to, I need to have a lot of warm up time. So I do some warm up exercises and then, um, and then it's the, 
sand wedge part shots work way up through the find some tempo clubs and maybe loosen up the lurch a little bit and <laughs> i like definitely that don't, definitely don't hit the driver till the end <laughs> or at all what would you tell a beginner golfer that's kind of looking for something a system to sort of instill some confidence if they were going to do some sort of a warm-up routine on the range, what would that be? This isn't a rapid-fire question, so you can kind of go into this if you like. Well, well, I think I think you need to – you know, anybody that's serious about the game needs to do a lot of these things with a purpose. And, and part of it is – part of it is injury prevention. Like, you've seen it where people will – come out and the first thing is the the driver's the first club out of the bag and they're making these violent slashes at the golf ball and I'm thinking I wonder if there's an ambulance going to be rolling <laughs> in somewhere because this person might need it um, but yeah there needs to be some kind of a process that a person uses like generally that. it's small swings to big swings slow tempo to fast tempo would be the mm-hmm. I always like the philosophy about hitting some balls with your feet together. I haven't done that for years and years and years, but that was always kind of a, a fun way to warm up to just find some balance and find some, find some rhythm. One thing I noticed with Charlie Belgian at Las Sendas, he would always just like, yeah, just hit a couple, like not even maybe even hit them like eight yards with his wedge, just trying to find the bottom of the club at the, mm-hmm. like just, yeah, massaging a couple out there. And I was like, hmm, that's very interesting. Yeah, I think we're fine with a lot of tour players and better players is at the beginning, they're just trying to find the ball and find some rhythm and, and get things loosened up and get the blood flowing. And again, warm up isn't stretching. You don't want to be doing stretching. That actually there's been research that says if you stretch God. before you play golf, it actually slows your muscles down. But what you do want to do is get the muscles moving and working. So you get the blood flowing to them and get them warmed up. That's what you want to do. And then find the golf ball and hit some shots. And, um, and then once you're warmed up and you're able to make your full swings, then start thinking about picking targets. There you go. And I, I know like for me, one of the things I like to do is hit 100-yard seven-iron punch shots. Mm. Or just got a big 100-yard sign out there, and I, I like trying to hit – you know, sort of a, a punchy little eye high out um, seven iron that flies and hits that sign. Why? I'm bringing that because in. it forces you to lag the club and it forces you to keep your hands ahead and it forces you to get the club hitting the ball and bottoming out after impact. Mm-hmm. Little trap shots. Those trap shots. And then that mm-hmm. sort of flows back through that whole feeling through the rest of your clubs. Mm-hmm. I like that. What is your go-to snack at the turn? Are you a hot dog guy? Are you a beverage guy? Are you a pack of cigarettes guy? Are you a power bars? What's your go-to? Uh, I would have to say a turkey sandwich. I like that. Mustard? Okay. Whatever they're putting on it. <laughs> as long as it's not Dijon mustard. Ooh. Okay. Pardon me. Do you have any gray poupon? Yeah. Pardon me. <laughs> I like how you threw cigarettes in there, Park. To you're an animal. <laughs> when was the last time you saw a pack of cigarettes? At the I know. I know he's not a smoker, so I, I had to mix them. I, I like chewing on the menthol ones. They have a better taste. <laughs> there you go. 
This is kind of cliche, but we always like to ask our guests, what is your dream foursome, dead or alive? This kind of gives us a little perspective into maybe the people that really matter in golf to them. Oh, boy. Um, we, got, we got a nice foursome right here, eh, Rouse? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Might not be the dream team, but <laughs> be a fun round. Um, there's so many that would it would be so much fun to play golf with. Um, Hogan would be one of them in his prime just to watch him hit golf balls. And, and Tiger, of course, I mean, who knows what the conversation might be like, but just watching those guys hit golf balls would be, would be truly amazing. Um, so Hogan, Tiger, uh, there's a long list of guys I could throw in there. Um. I suppose Nicholas in his prime would be would be pretty good. Arnie power, powerhouse his prime group. would be pretty good to have. Very All the big guns. Very stoic characters. Yeah. The goat group. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I don't know what the conversation would be like, but I don't know if there'd be that much conversation to be honest. Strangely enough, I think Jack might be Jack might be the loud one of that group. I might not even play, I'd just watch. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Somebody, yes, yeah, somebody gave us their dream foursome was like Bobby Jones, Tiger Woods, and like all the generations. Yeah. And we're thinking, like, wow, this would be a good little match, be some good side action going on. I'd just like to hear Bobby Jones chirping everyone. <laughs> that southern drawl, yeah. There you go, get my ball, boy. Hole in one, how Augusta. many have we had? Uh, one, Ooh, only one, two others that were hanging on the lip. Part of the ball over the hole and not going in. That's cellophane bridge. Where where was your hole in one? Uh, number three at Highlands. Oh, really good hole. Yeah, that is a good hole. Nice. Well, and it was a good one too because it hit short of the flag, took a bounce, and then spun into the back of the cup from behind. Oh yeah, that's nice. What's that? What's the yardage on that hole? There, so you know the tees up here, the greens there, so you can see the whole thing too, right? Yeah. 130, 140 yard shot. I was playing golf with my mom and my dad. So that was pretty cool. Oh, wow. That's a special one. Remember that forever. Favorite golf course in Canada? And then give us one globally that you've had the opportunity to experience. Mm, geez, you know, there's so many good golf courses, even just in the Edmonton area. Eh? Like you guys play them all. It's, we're lucky to have so many good golf courses here to play. I think. It's funny because I actually read your bio on the CPGA website and I, I saw an answer that was there. So I'm interested to see if that still holds up. Um, I think one of the most fun days I had playing golf just because it was so beautiful and the golf course was a lot of fun to play was the Ridge course at Predator Ridge. Yep. That's it. And, uh, you get around the corner and up into the back. I don't know if you guys have played it or not, but man, it's just beautiful back in there. Mm -hmm. That's Fun an amazing hole. piece of property. Yeah, it's it's really good. And I suppose I still have a soft spot for Waterton Lakes mm -hmm. Golf Course because I mean the scenery there, it's beautiful. You're right in the mountains. Uh, Jasper, another really good one. A lot of fun. Um, one another place that I played was in Malaysia, a place called Genting Highlands, hmm. and 
outside of Kuala Lumpur, at the very top of a mountain in the clouds, like it's 100 degrees in Kuala Lumpur, it's 60 degrees at the top of the mountain, and it's half covered in cloud, is a gigantic hotel and casino. <clears throat> and you, you put your clubs uh, on a cable car, and from the hotel it takes you down about halfway down the mountain, and in this big valley, is a golf course that uh, Peter Thompson designed, you know, the great Australian player. Yeah. Um, and that was really a lot of fun playing there too. Very cool. So different. All right. One final question on my side, and then we're going to turn it over to Chris for the wrap-up question of the evening. We always like to ask our guests what their best score was on or off the golf course. This could be relative to anything in life. It doesn't have to be your, your golf score specifically. Well, that's a loaded question, isn't it? Maybe a favorite student you had you know, along the way. <laughs> that certainly was not me. The most loaded question. Like my wife is what you got to say <laughs> yeah. if, you're, if you're a smart man at least in the Good thing my kids aren't here to listen to this from my way. <laughs> yeah, too. the door is closed, so, right? <laughs> well, we'll stick to the golf theme. All right, sixty-seven. All right, all right. I like that. Definitely respectable. It's mine. At Sturge, it was at Sturge, and it was one of those days where that was the worst score that it could have been. Hmm. You know, some days you're making sinking them out of the way, out of bunkers, and sinking thirty footers, and it's just a you know, but that was a day where um, I three putted once from about 12 feet because the hole was cut in a really bad spot and I lipped out my, my second putt. Um, I lipped out two four footers for birdie, and everything else was the longest putt I made for birdie was about 10 feet. Wow, just hit every fairway, hit it on the green. It was it was just why can't it always be like that, though? I don't know. It doesn't have to be hard. I don't know. I don't know. The time I have played with you, Alan, it did seem like it should be like that every single day for you. I think you did hit almost every fairway and almost every green and damn near lipped out every single putt. I was like, this is really boring golf. Like, <laughs> well, that, I, not I exciting often tell people that, that uh, when they say that your golf game is boring, I take that as a supreme compliment because... <laughs> It doesn't have to be a thrill a minute, you know. Hit it on the fairway, hit it on the green, take a couple of putts, go to the next tee. It's the whole day Jody was sitting there, he's like, watch this. He's like, You're gonna be just it'd be like watching Lord. paint dry by the end of this. And you're like, oh, 73, <laughs> eh? Damn. <laughs> Boring. It was awesome. I loved it. Learned a lot that day. Uh Alan, this is uh kind of a question I think you would have a great answer for. If you were commissioner of golf, including PGA and the amateur scene, what is the first thing that you would change? Stop with the freaking music. Wow, really? Oh, wow. A lot of people want the music. I don't mind the music <laughs> as long as it's, if you're 10 paces away from the speaker, you shouldn't be able to hear it. But Fair I've enough. been at golf courses where you could hear somebody coming three fairways away. They got the, they got the beats going and just like, you know, the world's noisy enough as it is. Yeah. Um, let's have a little bit of peace, quiet, and tranquility. If you want to have some music, 
I got no problem with that. Just turn the volume down so you can hear it or your friend can hear it. You don't have to share it with me. I agree. <laughs> I like that. That's kind of one of my pet peeves. The other thing I would do is um, thinking about the rules of golf. They made some nice changes to the rules of golf, but I would still make um, make all your lost balls play like a lateral hazard. Mm. Up the pace maybe a little bit, yeah? Yeah. Up the pace. Definitely. They're kind of sort of doing that now, although they've got this new complicated – process of trying to figure out where to drop your ball i think that i would do that i don't really know what there's not a lot one thing i wouldn't do is um i think that the governing bodies are and i know there's reasons for it but i, I think that they're losing sight of the distance issue oh yeah right? oh man that was my next question would you would you limit the flight of the golf ball or would you change the golf courses? No, nothing. Those are the very best players in the world. Yeah, totally. And for sure, for sure, the distance has crept up. And, and you know, we're getting guys that are bigger, stronger. Uh, I was watching the Bermuda golf course, uh, the, the Bermuda Classic, Port and Royal. Uh, Gay won it. And they said he was short. He averaged 293. Mm-hmm. Shortest guy. Yeah. Yeah. So are Sad. you so are you a bifurcation kind of guy? No. No. You know, the average golfer, the average male golfer hits at about 220 when you figure in factor yeah. in everything, all of the handicap ranges. We don't need to hit it shorter. No, I'm just saying like should the tour guys be playing a shorter ball? No. All right. No. If what you know what I think if one guy was if we get into this all the time, but I think if one guy, Bryson DeChambeau, was just absolutely annihilating everybody. Okay, what's going on here? You we gotta, had that first. We got to we got to test him. Yeah, but it's he's not. No, it's you had not a consist- tw- You had it twenty years ago. In yeah, Tiger you already Woods. had that Tiger Woods, yeah. right? Like, there's no one person leading this charge. Everybody, the athletes are are being developed at a younger age. The speed is higher. The technologies, yeah, it's good, but. It's not. It's relative to the player that's manipulating the golf club or the ball. So, I don't know. It's, well, it's I don't a, know. It's a hard conversation. There's, there's more to play. Certainly, length is an advantage, but there's more to playing golf than length. And if you think back to the beginning of the season after the COVID thing, we got started again, and Bryson was coming out, and he was. I uh, watched one tournament there where I think they said he had a, on the par fours. His average length into the greens was like 75 yards. That was at Detroit. But he's yeah, airmailing all the greens. Like oh, he had yeah. no distance control. Yeah. Everything was an airmail over the back of the green, and he's chipping it up trying to make pars that way. Um, you know, as far as Dustin Johnson hits it, where and he'll admit this, uh, where his game really took off was when he started being able to hit his wedges mm-hmm. and dialing in his distance on his wedges. And even at that, you still have to be able to putt. So, you know, uh, not to pick on poor Bryson, but, and I think he's good for the game, but you know, when he said that at the masters, he thought it was a par 67 for him. And then he, what did he finish at two under or something for the week? Barely made the cut. Uh, barely made the cut. So there's a lot more to golf than, than, than just being able to hit it far. And the other side of the coin too, is it's a really important skill. You think about, um, 
you know, maybe I hit it 250 and I hit it just on the edge of the fairway. Well, somebody that hits it 300 yards on that same line is 50 yards in the weeds, mm-hmm. right? So the guys that can hit it a long ways are playing with a very, very, very uh, tight uh, club face angle. Yeah, their margin of error is low. The margin of error yeah, that is very, very small. So it's a it's a really it's a it's a really difficult skill. And let's face it, hitting the ball far is sexy because no one most people who play golf don't do it. So do you want to watch it? You want to tune in on uh, you know a golf tournament and watch a guy button it out there 260 like they used to, yeah. you know, hitting the balls. Ryan Gay. (laughs) Into the the greens. Or do you want to watch a guy that's, you know, blasting at 320? We watched it in the Masters. Abe answered the whole time. He was hitting three words into the par fours. It was terrible. But I think that's what, like, you kind of, I know what you're saying. Like, you know, you want to hit it long and you don't want to have a different ball. But at the same time, like, we watched Tiger hit it really far. But he did it with a ball that spun. I mean, this ball nowadays, there is no movement in it. Especially on the like the pro side, I, I don't know. I th- I personally think I'd like to see pros play with a different ball. Uh, Augusta's going to have to be the one to implement it. It's the same for everybody. Yeah. though. I, my I, take I, is like ten years ago. You look back at like average driving distance, or maybe even fifteen, twenty. I don't know, but it's like I remember looking in the newspaper, and it was like you would see average tour driving distance was like 285 ish like tiger 315 he was monstrous but it's like yeah i guess when they hit the point where it's 375 380 like we might have to look at that like who's to say that it can't get there though like based on the engineering people put into their bodies now it's like the long drivers are definitely capable of it but they miss that crucial aspect of golf that to make a birdie on a par four, no matter where your drive goes, you need to get it up and down, right? Like that's, that's what makes a birdie. And once the guys that are are good at that aspect of it, develop the muscle capabilities and that philosophy that, Hey, don't try and st- like swing hard as you can, right? Like that's now the philosophy we've heard it here today. Like eventually that yardage is going up. We'll yeah. More. It'll be a constant topic of conversation, I'm sure. Yeah, I think that's the beauty of it. Well, it's it reminds me of the grooves controversy that was going on back in the day with the ping I twos and the square, square grooves. Stuff. Yep, yep. And uh, it actually, when they change, you guys probably know this. When they changed the grooves to make them less spinny, it actually helped the, the tour players because they could stop the ball. And it wouldn't spin back. So yeah. they're actually there, even out of the rough, they were hitting it closer to the hole um, after the, the groove changed because they didn't want to, um, you know, have this unfair advantage out of the rough with the grooves. Well, it actually helped them. I miss yeah. peeling covers off balls. The V grooves. Yeah. Yeah. Good From time. the square grooves. I remember that was such a big thing. Seriously. But Alan, we seriously can't thank you enough for jumping on with us. This is kind of an honor to have you on like a, a local legend someone that you know taught me in parks and codes and 1300 other students and it's just <laughs> nice to finally get you on here yeah it's been a, it's been a pleasure tracking you down we got to dedicate this podcast to one of the kids that that 
went through the program that's no longer with us and, and a, a really close friend of mine, Riley Warren St. Peter. Just want to dedicate this show to him. Miss that guy. I'm sure you remember him in class. He was a pretty uh, charismatic personality. So this one's for him. I remember him very well. Yes, that's very nice that you're mentioning him. That was I was that was really tragic when I I learned that he passed away. Yeah, Amen. absolutely. And Alan, I didn't get to join the golf program, so we had to condense my education of Alan Riley <laughs> philosophy into this one-hour podcast. And I appreciate him taking the time to sit with us. Well, again, thanks very much, guys. Uh, it's really exciting that you're doing this. I'm sure when you uh, left uh, the program, you never thought you would be in the media business and, <laughs> and uh, doing all this kind of stuff. But it's it's really awesome that you are. And uh, again, finding a way to connect with something that you're really passionate about. I think that's just terrific. And I want to wish you the best success with all of this stuff. And and uh, Thanks very much for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. And if you need someone else to talk more golf swing or golf technique or golf oh, stuff, yes. I've still got a bag for Lots in the tank. With you if you want. So Absolutely. We'll you definitely have, have you back on. This is one of many, we hope. so. All right, guys. Thanks very much. All the best. And uh, make sure you stay healthy, okay? Definitely. You as well. Thank you, Alan. Yep. And uh, Chris, Thanks, Alan. good luck out in BC. Thank you. And thank you everybody for listening. And we'll chat with you guys next week. Cheers.